Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. According to the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention, an estimated 59% of cats and 54% of dogs in the U.S. are overweight or obese. Now, I know obesity in companion animals is a big problem, but my first impression of these figures is that they seem very high to me. For quite a while now, Peter and I have been wanting to talk about overweight pets on the show, and finally, this is our chance. I want to welcome back Dr. Doug Coons, who is Medical Director of Desert VCA Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Doug. Hi, Laurie. How are you? I'm great. Doug, what do you think about those figures from the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention? Do they seem accurate to you? You know, Laurie, sadly, they do. Our our pets uh, lead very sedentary lives, and and so often uh, they are overfed and, uh, as a consequence, put on weight that they don't really need. And is this problem increasing in dogs and cats? Yes, it is. You know, it's a two-edged sword, uh, with cats particularly, because we encourage uh, cat owners to keep their do- their cats in the house uh, and out of harm's way of uh, automobiles and other critters that might uh, attack them. Right. Uh, they live a sedentary life, and unless we're very careful in our feeding habits, they, they tend to put on weight. Our dogs, too, to a lesser extent, you know, we we don't uh, generally let our dogs roam the way, you know, maybe our parents did when 40 or 50 years ago. And so consequently, unless we make a concerted effort to ensure that our dogs get adequate exercise, uh, again, if we're not careful in the the amount of calories that we're feeding, uh, the dogs can put on extra weight that, uh, that they don't really benefit from. Doug, in the office or at our home, how can one tell if, if one's dog or cat is overweight? The very best measurement is not how much a pet weighs, but to put your hand, the flat of your hand, over the ribs. And without putting pressure, you should be able to just barely feel the ribs. If you have to press to feel the ribs, they're overweight. Or if you can actually see ribs, then they're underweight. Now, Doug, this may be a very simple question, and you you already gave us some answers to this, but what are the causes of pet obesity? One of the big causes is free feeding. You know, it's very easy just to fill a food dish in the morning yeah. and and not, uh, not measure out a specific portion, and then our pets can munch all day long and... Uh, and then as they lay around in a sedentary environment, they they get fat. And they're bored, so they munch all day long. Yes, that that as well. So you know, many of our dogs and I'm I'm looking at, at Teddy right now, who's a labradoodle, and you know, Teddy Teddy's really a working dog and yet he lives uh in our house and a smaller yard and uh he needs a job. To keep that weight down. Yeah. Doug, you and I um, on a previous show talked about obesity in cats as a cause of diabetes. What other problems does obesity cause in dogs and cats? You know, there are a myriad of them. Type 2 diabetes, which is the same kind of diabetes that people get that are overweight, affects our cats. And 
often it requires insulin. If it's caught very early, sometimes it can be reversed with uh, proper diet. Uh, cats, you know, are true carnivores. And so uh, unlike dogs, uh, they really need a high-protein diet. And by feeding a diet that's particularly high in, in uh, protein and low in carbohydrate, we can often reverse the diabetes without moving to injections of insulin. But some of the other problems in dogs that we see, uh, you know, we see often smaller dogs that are overweight that have chronic cough. And as they deposit fat in their bodies, the, the fat can actually impinge on the, on the trachea and, uh, and cause a, a chronic cough. Oh, interesting. And, we find that medicine doesn't really help these pets. Weight loss is usually the only thing that will really resolve that. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Doug, is obesity in dogs and cats associated with heart disease and high blood pressure as it is in people? You know, not generally, because dogs and cats don't form plaque in their arteries the way we do. So they, they process things a little bit differently. Uh, the pig is actually the model for atherosclerosis uh, as far as animals go, as well as pet birds can develop atherosclerosis and high blood pressure. Uh, but obesity in dogs doesn't usually affect the, the heart, unless a dog has congestive heart failure and if they're overweight, it's just one more extra burden on them. Do overweight people tend to have overweight pets? Are you aware of any research on that, or do you have your own impression, Doug? You know, uh, there's often an association. And and I don't want to, you know, I'm not the skinniest guy in the world, so I can't say too much. But uh, often if we're not controlling our own diet very well, we sometimes tend to be indulgent with our pets. And so... It's just my impression of 40 years of practice that uh, often the two go hand in hand. Yeah, it must be, very, um, must be very awkward if you have a very heavy client come in your office who also has a, a heavy dog for you to advise them to cut down on the dog portions or the treats and to exercise them more. That's a challenge. <laughs> okay. a challenge, especially, you know, in our practice, we see a lot of, of geriatric pets who are owned by older folks, and uh, often they have arthritis uh, themselves and, and mobility issues, and it's really hard to say, you know, you need to take your dog around the block an extra time or two because really they struggle to do that themselves. Yeah. So speaking of addressing the problem of obesity, what are the best and safest ways for dogs and cats to lose weight? You know, the very best way to do it is with portion control number one. So feed uh, an amount of food that's measured with a measuring cup so that you know exactly how many calories your dog or cat is getting every day. And then also increasing activity because the thing that happens if we just cut calories, often the body's response to that is, oh, I'm in starvation mode, so I better slow my metabolism. Right. And so... uh, we need to increase that exercise level uh, at the same time. And with a dog, it's a matter of walking or playing. Sometimes it's it's using something like a Kong toy that you put the food in 
so that the dog has to work to get its food, uh, hiding food uh, around the house instead of just having a bowl full of food sometimes is a is a good uh, just promotes better activity in in a dog. With a cat, it's a little more problematic because you know you, not too many cats go out jogging with their owners. Uh, you know it's more looking at play toys that you can keep the your kitty active. Right. Uh, the laser mice uh, work really well to get a cat to chase it. And, uh, you know it's a lot of fun and relaxing a great interaction with your pet to to uh, you know to carry on an activity like that any final words of advice well I just do want to make say one bit of advice and that is that there's an awfully lot of hype out there associated with diet and you have to kind of weed through the hype and the marketing mm. to know really what you should feed you know cats truly are carnivores and they need an appropriate diet Dogs are omnivores, and so uh, looking at calorie density in the diet is important. There are diets that have a lower caloric intensity, but it really doesn't matter so much whether they're on an all-meat diet uh, versus if there's grain in the diet. So it's just a matter of calories, just the same way as it is with us. Veterinarian Dr. Doug Coons, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Lori. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused, because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. 
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. We just learned about obesity in dogs and cats with Dr. Douglas Coons. Now, I have to tell you that Peter and I thought Elton, one of our four cats, was overweight. He's a long-haired cat, actually the only long-haired cat we have or ever had. And if you ever had a cat, especially a long-haired cat, then you probably are aware of this common problem of matted hair, which are these clumps of hair. And not only are they unsightly, but they can become quite painful for the cat and may even cause skin irritations or infections if they're not removed. Anyway, we had to have Elton shaved since we allowed the mats to get ahead of us and trying to work each knot out would be an arduous, painful process for all of us. So we had him professionally groomed. They actually did a lion cut. Des- describe a lion a cut, lion Peter. Cut. Okay, so the hair in his torso and most of his legs and most of the tail is just cut to almost nothing. It's just a fine little fuzz. And they keep the natural fur on the paws and the tip of the tail and the head. Looks and like a little lion. It is the cutest thing. It's and so he's, a, you know, he's a golden tabby color. He, it's quite remarkable. But anyway, my point is after Elton's shaving, you can tell that this cat is not overweight at all. No, he is muscular. That was the main thing that I saw. He is just a solid muscled. His rear legs, you could see the definition on them. It was incredible. Plus, how about his personality? I mean, it changed, right? It sure did. You know, he was a little reserved and on the shy side, and now he's like extroverted, and he wants you to rub his back. It's really, he's changed so much. It's almost as if he was in pain when we rubbed him before. Or maybe a little uncomfortable. Yeah. So I did not expect that at all. It's been really nice. So we're going to probably... He's a new little cat, a new little lion. (laughs) Our new little lion. We're going (laughs) to keep him this way, I guess. Yes, we're not going to let it get out of control. Right. And uh, coincidentally, we... Just want to mention a couple of products that we received recently that might help you keep your cat and your dogs uh, better groomed. One is called Bump It Off. This is a uh, handheld silicone uh, rectangle. It's pretty soft. You can stick your fingers into it. And on one side, it's got these soft bristles. And on the other side, it's got a sort of regular pattern of nubs or bumps. And this is marketed to be a useful cleaning device or multi-purpose thing that you can use around the house. But it's especially useful to us as a dog grooming tool. We've used it dry uh, on the dogs to comb them. And also, you don't know this, I brought it into the shower when I was bathing one of the dogs and used it wet. And that worked really well, too. Used it on yourself? No, not on myself. Okay. So that's Bump It Off. And then another handy gadget we recently received is called the Hands-On Bathing and Grooming Gloves. 
These are five-fingered gloves. They come in pairs. They come in sizes. And these have scrubbing nodules, also sort of little rubberized nubs on the finger and palm surface. And you put this on and you use it to groom your animals in a somewhat similar fashion. I've tried this on both cats and they sort of like it a little bit. So we're going to continue working with this hands-on bathing and grooming gloves. These look pretty useful. Next time I take one of the dogs into the shower, I'll bring them into and see what happens. Earlier, Lori, Dr. Coons was talking about feeding and how dogs sit around all day and have a open bowl of food. Well, we have a food-related issue that I think we've solved uh, because of another product, and we actually purchased this product. Our dogs, two of the dogs, were eating super fast, and this was observed by a friend of ours who advised us really to slow them down. This person uh, reminded us that eating fast is not healthy for the dogs. It can cause medical problems, and it's also a very common problem, and introduced us to a particular brand of a slow-feeding bowl. This one is called Outward Hound Fun Feeder, and this is a plastic feeding device. It contains these steep ridges, and you just pour your dog food or dish it in there, and the dogs really need to take different angles to get at the food and stick their tongue in the nooks and crannies, and it, wow, it slowed them down a lot. And ultimately, they get it all, but instead of like 30 seconds, it's now a four or five minute process. So it's a much happier uh, situation. We think this is a great little product, Outward Hound. And while we're talking about products, we have to share one neat little line of products. And we did uh, sample these, or our cats sampled them. This is a line of catnip called Meowiwana, M-E-O-W-I-Wana. And this is catnip. It's organic catnip. The cats love it. But the whole style of this line emulates modern human marijuana culture. So they offer catnip products that look like little marijuana buds. They look like joints. They look like cigars. There's a little stash box. I mean, they really emulate the whole modern marijuana accessory culture. Right in front of me, I have a little wooden box. It looks like a little cigar box, and in it is a beautiful little bud of catnip. It looks like the pictures of marijuana that I've seen. Yeah, how do you know all this? <laughs> and on the website, I just rechecked on the website, you can even get a Meowiwana ID card for your cat. In case he or she is pulled over, she can produce the card to prove that she is legally allowed to have that. That's so cute. Yes. Okay, more with animals today after the break. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. 
Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Hi, it's Lori Kirshner from Animals Today, and here's your Animals Today Minute. Xylitol is a sweetener that is commonly used in sugar-free gum and candy, toothpaste, mouthwash, baked goods, and chewable vitamins. Xylitol is safe for humans, but can be extremely toxic to dogs. Luckily, cats do not seem to be interested in eating foods with xylitol. But in dogs, even small amounts of xylitol can cause hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, seizures, liver failure, and even death. The effects can appear as quickly as 10 minutes after ingestion. If your dog has eaten a xylitol-containing item, bring him or her to your veterinarian or emergency animal hospital immediately, even if there's no symptoms yet. He or she should be monitored there for 12 to 24 hours just to be safe. Also, please be aware that some nut butters now have xylitol as an added ingredient, so check your labels. And of course, don't let your dogs get at your chewing gum and mints. These are serious dangers, causing the FDA to release a consumer alert on the risks to dogs, which you can read at fda.gov slash consumer. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner with your Animals Today Minute for the day. back to the show, there are many issues you will face as you make your environment or your home rodent-free, like what methods will work, and does the situation require poisons, traps, or other methods? Then, if some kind of poison or rodenticide is used, what's available, and how does it work? And most importantly, will it pose a danger to my children, dogs, cats, and to wildlife? Our family had a brush with rodent poison when one of our dogs got into a bait station set out to prevent squirrels from damaging a nearby levee. This particular poison consisted of oats saturated with a cobalt blue substance, and Susie shoved her snout into the dispenser before we even realized what it was. We rushed her to the vet, who induced vomiting and placed her on a month of vitamin K. Fortunately, she did fine. There have been recent changes in regulations and product availability in California and on the federal level. Recently, I had a chance to speak with a genuine expert in this area to explain how to safely deal with rodent problems. Jonathan Evans serves as Toxics and Endangered Species Campaign Director and a staff attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity. Jonathan coordinates the center's work to reduce the harm of toxic contamination on wildlife and the environment. Would you please give us an overview on the types of rodent poisons? Certainly. There are three main categories that we see in, in widespread use in the United States. Uh, these are called first-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, and, and what that term refers to is that these um, types of products are um, 
prevent the clotting of blood. They're anticoagulant, um, so they, it leads to internal bleeding or, ex, or, or inability of the animal to actually clot um, the blood when they get a cut or some type of injury. Uh, there are other types of products um, that are called second-generation anticoagulants, rudenicides, and those are um, higher potency than the first generation. And the third category are, are not anticoagulants. They're just other types of um, neurotoxins or products. And I think it's important for your listeners to realize, as, as you pointed out initially, is that these products are really ubiquitous, even if you're not using them in the home. There are bait boxes that are around restaurants or grocery stores or even outdoor areas around levees. So they're getting into the environment. They're getting into our, our families and our pets in ways that we don't even know about. Um, and the exposure rates in the U.S. and in California are particularly widespread. We have seen data from studies across the U.S. and in California where 70% of mammals tested and 68% of birds and, and wildlife species are being exposed to these types of dangerous um, rodenticide products, and in particular, the really super toxic rodenticides, which are the second generation anticoagulants, which are the higher potency types of um, rat, rat and mouse poisons. So, Jonathan, go into the risks that these poisons pose to people, companion animals, wild animals, and the environment. Sure. You know, the, there's, these products are designed to kill um, rodents, ground squirrels, rats, other types of organisms. So they're lethal to non-organisms that actually ingest them as well. Um, which is why it was so important for you to take your dog immediately to the vet to um, get a, a type of treatment um, of vitamin K to allow the, the blood clotting again uh, and to um, get that product out of the system. But we've seen it uh, in high rates of exposure to um, the pets um, and wildlife and importantly, even uh, children as well. You know, the Environmental Protection Agency compiled data um, to analyze the risks of these types of rodenticides on children and found that um, 15,000 children a year are accidentally exposed to rat poison. Um, this didn't lead to fatal events in, in all these circumstances, certainly, thank, thank goodness. But, you know, it really shows the, the amount of exposure. And, and these can be very toxic in a very small dose. So even minimal amounts that are ingested by um, by children, by pets, by uh, wildlife can, can be potent. And the second generation products, which we were discussing, these super toxic products, the way that they work is it causes several days for the internal bleeding to actually uh, lead to a lethal death. And it's, you know, it's important to recognize this is a pretty gruesome type of um, type of death, you know, it leads to convulsions, it leads to um, a great deal of thirst because the animal is trying to um, deal with the, the lost um, fluids in its body. So we really discourage your listeners from, from using these products at all because there are, are safer alternatives. Uh, when the animals go back and feed on these um, super toxic uh, second generation products, it, it takes them a couple days to die, so they'll go back and feed several times. And they essentially build up with a, a, a more than lethal dose. And when they're preyed upon by upper-level predators like hawks and eagles um, and bobcats and foxes, 
those animals then ingest that product as well, either directly because they're eating the product that's in the animal's stomach or because they're eating the residues that are in the animal's organs. And it is really becoming incredibly widespread in the food chain. Um, And it's particularly harmful to a lot of these um, wildlife species that are actually um, doing their part to keep down the the rodent population that, that people are trying to address through these poisons. You know, owls can actually ingest up to six mice in one feeding in a night. So these, um, they can be highly effective um, predators to help deal with our rodent control issue outside of just, um, uh, outside of the own harm to the environment. And we're going to talk about the safer alternatives in a minute. Jonathan, briefly, what's going on in the California legislative scene in this area? Well, there is some legislation going on in, uh, in California right now to eliminate some of the uses in, uh, in and around natural areas. But importantly, California regulators, just the beginning of this month on January or July 1st, actually instituted um, a partial ban on some of these super toxic rodenticides. They, um, only, now in California, you can only use the products if you're a licensed applicator. So you have to go through a certain training process because of the, the hazards of these products. And, and importantly, it gets them out, out of sales for residential consumers and in, in agricultural supply stores. So that really will reduce the amount. But we still have them out in the system. There's still a mechanism for poisoning because every time that these licensed applicators use a bait box or other type of um, other type of pro, other type of uh, poisoning mechanism, the the um, rodenticides can still get up in the food chain and harm a lot of wildlife species. What are your recommendations and the Center for Biological Diversity's recommendations for people when choosing a poison? And, Jonathan, what are the alternatives to poisons when trying to control invasive rodent populations? And that's a really important question. You know, the, a lot of uh, rats and mice do pose you know, human health risks. With, um, they, can, they can be disease vectors, and, and we know there are ways that we need to be able to, to manage these populations. And I, I think that there are very safe, affordable, um, and easy solutions that can be used by everyone to deal with these rodent infestations without using any type of dangerous rodenticides. Importantly, it's uh, necessary to, to really prevent the infestation from happening in the first place by sealing off cracks or um, points of entry and eliminating the things that the rodents are going to be attracted to, food sources or water or shelter. So taking that step to eliminate them from areas that you want to get to keep them out of is, is really key in making sure that they don't return. Next, you want to, next thing you want to do is um, eliminate any type of, you want to identify future problems and eliminate any um, rats or mice that you may see. And there are ways such as using snap traps or electric traps to deal with a rodent infestation problem and really sort of um, eliminating things that attract them in your overall property is the best way to go. Great. And, Jonathan, where can listeners learn more about the dangers of rodenticides and safe, cost-effective alternatives to control rodents? I encourage your listeners to visit saferodentcontrol.org, where there's a, a whole range of um, step-by-step guides to dealing with uh, rodent control in, in a safe and effective manner in their homes. It also goes into more detail about the, the dangers that many of these rodenticides pose. So saferodentcontrol.org is your resource to find out about safe and cost-effective rodent control strategies. And tell us your website for the Center for Biological Diversity. Certainly. Um, biologicaldiversity.org. You can learn a lot more about the Center for Biological Diversity and the work that we do to protect endangered species um, from a range of threats and ways that we can reduce um, the harms of pesticides 
overall on the environment. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. It's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. March 29th, the last Wednesday in March, is Manatee Appreciation Day. Did you know that, Peter? I didn't know that, but I know it now. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about manatees. Do you know the other name for manatee? Hmm. I know a nickname, Sea Cow. Sea Cow. Is that what you mean? Right, yes. Yeah. They're also referred to as the gentle giants. Yeah. So they're very docile creatures and have no natural enemies except... Except people. Humans, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So manatees are mammals and live in slow-moving waters like canals, rivers, and coastal areas. They're migratory species and inhabit Florida waters during the winters and then move as north as Virginia and as west as Texas in the summer months. Oh, I didn't know they went out to the Gulf. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So are they herbivores or are they carnivores? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think they're vegetarians. Yes, they are, which yes. means that they eat plants, in this case, plants that grow on the sea floor. So although they live in the water and can stay down for as long as 20 minutes, they can't breathe water. There are three living species of manatee, the West Indian manatee, West African manatee, and Amazonian manatee. Mm. Now, babies nurse from nipples under their mother's flippers. Yes, basically, it's under their armpits. Mm. And mothers take care of their babies for up to two years. Now, unless humans screw up their life cycles, which they often do, manatees can live up to, what would you say, 10 years, oh, I'm gonna say 30 years, mm, or 60 years? 30 years. 60 years. Wow. Yeah. Mm. 
So what threats do manatees face and why do we need to appreciate these gentle, beautiful giants? Okay, how about uh, things like storms, uh, climate change? No? Um, uh, how about if the water gets fouled from bacteria or algae? Well, all those are really good guesses, and they might be true. So first of all, manatees are endangered, and they're protected under federal law, and hunting them is illegal, but humans are still their only known enemy. People do poach them for their meat oh my goodness. and skins. Now, they also get caught up in the fishing lines and nets. Unfortunately, many of the manatees die from these catches. Mm. And coastal development has taken away a lot of the places they live. Okay, that's the same old story. Right. They can collide with boats. Yep. Remember, they're very slow moving. So almost always the animal will die when they crash with a big boat. Yeah. Some get badly injured by boat propellers. Florida has special speed zones in some waterways where manatees live, but fatal collisions still happen. Chemicals in the water, which you alluded to earlier, from things like oil spills and other pollution can weaken their immune systems. And it's been estimated that there are about 3,200 living in the U.S. Mm. So we need to appreciate them today so future generations can keep appreciating them for years to come. So the last Wednesday in March, March 29th, is Manatee Appreciation Day. Okay. And Lori, I bet you know this. March is Dolphin Awareness Month. You love dolphins. I do love dolphins. They get a whole month. How's that? Yeah. The, the slow-moving manatee. Anyway, it's pretty sad. You know, I do really like dolphins very much, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But still, there are too many. Well, one's too many. There are so many dolphins in captivity. They're captured, and then they spend their lives in little tanks performing their stunts. Others are killed in hunts, and we've covered that many times in previous shows. And then the third category, they are just killed as a result of fishing when they are unintentionally caught up in those nets. But do you remember the time that we got that interesting postcard in our office? Oh, yes. Okay, so this is a story I want to share with everybody. We, you may know, Lori and I are both ophthalmologists for humans, so we are uh, eye surgeons, and we uh, share an office in Southern California, and uh, one day I received a postcard. It was the end of the year. It was like a, a happy holiday sort of card, and it was a large format uh, postcard. It was color, and on one side, it had the information from another ophthalmologist, a specialty eye surgeon who was advertising and promoting his practice and explaining why you might want to consider sending your patients to him for certain problems. And on the other side was the happy family picture, or supposed to be happy family picture. And you've got three of his children, maybe they're age 12 through 15, something like that, in a shallow pool with a dolphin. And they are at one of these swim with dolphin operations and they've got their vests on and they're happy. And it was put out there as just a, you know, happy holiday card, probably innocently and naively. Well, this got me all very excited. And I just shot off an email to this practice uh, explaining to them the problems with swim with dolphin programs and that they should really get educated and also that they should take the time and watch the movie The Cove, where they will understand where these dolphins come from. 
and that maybe they would change their thinking on that and uh, not bring their kids to these places anymore. And uh, I felt pretty good about contacting them. And then, Laura, you got involved in this too. Well, Peter, I have to interject here because when I got the postcard, I called the office and I actually spoke to the receptionist and explained to her the problems associated with these swimming with the dolphins programs. And she was quite receptive, actually. She actually appreciated being educated on this matter. She told me she would relay the message to the doctor. And she also told me that she received a similar complaint via email the day before. Uh-huh. That must have been you. It was me and we had not talked about <laughs> we this. We did not. That's we so funny. We had the same reaction to yeah. this postcard. Yeah. Well, hopefully it will have had an effect on at least that family and that medical office. But I do want to uh, share with everyone, I actually do have a little guilty pleasure of collecting dolphin little statuettes. And I've got a little corner of the living room. I've got a little shelf. And where do I get these? I get them at thrift stores and consignment shops. So when I've got a little time or if I'm in a new city, this is what I like to do. I like to scope out a couple of stores. I always get them used and uh, look for a little crystal or glass, or if you're lucky, a nice polished brass statue, and it goes into my collection. Uh, These are not expensive pieces. They're just uh, a cute little uh, collection, and they make me feel good because dolphins make me happy. What do you think about that, Lori? You embarrassed by your husband? I think you make me happy. Oh, thanks, sweetie. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>